Hey, today we're going to be uh, chapter two of Ephesians. We're going to, well, we're not going to finish up chapter two. That's what I originally wrote here, but uh, we're not going to make all the way through chapter two. But we're going to be chapter two of Ephesians. Last week, we tackled three of the most well-known verses in the entire New Testament. Uh, let's just read them really quickly together because it's just three verses. They're awesome. They'll do as good a job reminding you where we came from as anything else. Ephesians 2. 8, 9, and 10. If you, even if you weren't here last week, you're going to recognize these. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Man, that's powerful. So powerful. We boiled it down to three thoughts last week. We boiled it down to one thing, and that is grace is the only thing that can save us. Grace is the only thing that can save us. That's what's in those verses there. We talked about how it's a fundamental thing. You have to understand the very basis of you that we can't be reconciled to God any other way except by his grace. We talked about fundamentals of math and fundamentals of baseball, fundamentals of the gospel. We talked seconds about how we can't take credit for the grace of God. We can't take credit. It comes from him. Even the faith to accept that grace comes from him. Grace is a gift from God. Uh, a gift is something that's freely given, and the receiver doesn't do anything to deserve it. They just accept the gift. Our culture is very inwardly focused, right? We talked about YouTube and iPhones and iPods, right? We're used to being able to control everything that we get, earn everything we get, but we can't earn God's grace. Finally, we talked about uh, how those two things help us know that we are God's masterpiece. Depending on what version you have, it might say masterpiece. It might say workmanship. But the word that's translated into those in the Greek is poema, P-O-E-I-M-A. Sounds like poem because that's probably where we got that word. So literally what Paul is saying here is we are God's work of art. We are God's beautiful poem that he is writing, you and I. And if we're breathing, friends, we know this last week, if we're breathing, if you're here, you're breathing, you got up today, God's not done with you. You're his handiwork, you're his masterpiece, he's still working on you. That leads us to this week and next uh, section of verses to restore friendship or harmony. That's what it means to be reconciled. To be united means literally to be joined together for a common purpose. God wants us to be those things, reconciled to him, reconciled to each other, and united in Christ. And today, as we focus on being reconciled to God, we're going to focus on just a few verses. Uh, so let's read first Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are, who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember it that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Ephesians 2, 11 through 13. God wants us to be reconciled to him. That's our main idea today. God wants us to be reconciled to him. We're going to talk next week, like I said, about being reconciled to each other. But we've got to get this piece first. In order to be reconciled,
like pull up any game you wanted on any device, right? You had to get lucky. And if you, if you were a fan of the Dodgers, you just had to get lucky they happened to be on on Saturday or Sunday. There was less teams in the playoffs, right? Some of you maybe might be remembering this. And it was 1988, and the Dodgers had this pitcher named Earl Hershiser. He was a believer. I love that because I was, went to church, and I was buckaroo of the year. And I love that, that he like, you know, had Bible verses. And when he, they interviewed him, he'd always give the glory to God. I love that when I was eight years old. Uh, the Dodgers had this guy named Kurt Gibson who was their MVP, but he got hurt really bad. And they played, anybody remember who they played that year? The Oakland A's. The A's had the Bash brothers, right? Jose Canseco and Mark McGuire. So I'm eight years old, Spokane, Washington. We lived on the Air Force Base, Fairchild Air Force Base. We lived just like a mile from the flight line. And the B-52s were always taken off. Lived in this old house that would just get shaken to the bones every time those planes took off. But I just remember so vividly laying on the hardwood floor of that house because the NLCS and the World Series, those games were on, on every night, right? So I would just lay there on the floor and I would watch those games and watch this guy, Earl Hershiser, who was a believer, just like dominate. Won the, won the MVP of both the NLCS and the World Series. The Dodgers were huge underdogs to the A's. Uh, if you remember that, in 88, in, uh, in game one, Kirk Gibson hit this home run. That's one of the most dramatic home runs in baseball history. Here's the point. I didn't even know at the time that the Dodgers' real rival is the Giants. To me, it was the A's because that's what I watched, right? The A's were adversaries. And I am not joking you, any, any person that I saw wearing green for years, I just assumed they were an A's fan. When I went to school, I was just making dead sure I was not wearing green. Like, St. Patrick's Day was a real problem because I didn't want to wear green. <laughs> I did not want to, It was better to get pinched than be mistaken for an A's fan, right? I'm sorry if any of you are A's fans in here. I just assumed that anyone who wore green at school for several years was an A's fan. Just the color made you an adversary of mine. No one had to teach me to do that. I just figured it out, right? At the time, also, we were living in Spokane, which is close to Moscow, and Boise State, Idaho was a big rivalry, and we were about to move back to, to uh, Boise, and we went to a couple of Boise State, Idaho games in Moscow. My dad was a big Boise State fan, and of course we are now, but my grandfather, who had gone to Idaho, he'd given me his Idaho sweatshirt with big yellow Idaho on the chest, you know. As a kid, that was as philosophically as much as an adversary as I was going to get. But we live right now, though, in a culture that's full of adversaries. If only it was just as innocent as sports and not wearing green to school. Over the last couple of years, as much as any time I remember in my entire life, there's battle lines that have been drawn. You walk out this door, man, you got adversaries. You got adversaries over political candidates. It's always been that way, but more now than it's ever been. You got adversaries over viruses and masks. I was going to bring one up and take my pocket and show you, but I didn't want to invite that kind of controversy in church, you know? Only recently is something as flimsy as a mask brought about such strong opinions. I'm not saying one way or the other. It's just we got adversaries. Over the color of our skin. Again, that's always been a thing we've talked about. I'll tell you what, it's been so refreshing to be part of a church in a part of the valley where there's diversity in our ethnicity. Our ethnicity. So appreciate those of you who have a different viewpoint than mine, come from a different culture than I did. We could talk all day about who we are against, but I believe God wants to speak to us about the opposite today. Because what this passage is telling us is that instead of being adversaries, God's desire for us is to be reconciled. To others, yes, but first to him. 
In order to be reconciled to others, we got to be reconciled to God first. And before you tune me out about all this understanding other people, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying we don't have strong opinions. I have strong opinions. Come to men's breakfast, Elmer's at 7 a.m. I'll tell you my strong opinions. <laughs> at 7 a.m., I'll tell you my strong opinions. <laughs> Paul was a Jewish man. There were those of Jewish heritage who they could trace their bloodlines all the way back to that of Abraham. And there were those who couldn't. You were either a member of that group or you were not. There was no in-between. The Gentiles simply were the ones who could not trace their bloodlines back to Abraham. They had been a part of the Jewish people. And those not of Jewish heritage, that would include the vast majority of us here today. Now, there's two aspects that we have to tackle when it comes to this. The first is that the Gentiles, because they weren't a member of the Jewish people, they did not have an easy path to knowing God. They could know God, but it wasn't easy for them. Paul wades into these deep waters in these first few verses. He's not afraid of it. But this concept is really important for us, for us to understand because it's a meaningful for us to understand as God's people where we came from. Not only where we are, but where we came from. Because make no mistake, when he speaks of Gentiles, he's talking about us. We've talked uh, a little bit in the previous weeks about how the Jewish people would not have easily accepted that Gentiles could know God in the same way that they could. There were huge cultural differences between the Jews and the Gentiles, just as big a difference as you can possibly imagine. They were adversaries. That's why we used that word earlier. They were adversaries. They just simply lived life a different way, and we're going to dive into one of the ways in this next verse. Paul knows there's a divide between the two, and he's here to break down that divide. He's had enough of this people fighting about this stuff, and he's just going to go right into it. Some people would say, oh, I'm not going to touch that with a 10-foot pole. But Paul's just ready to put his gloves on it and wade in there and take care of it. Because first, both sides need to be reconciled to God. Now, there was an actual physical difference when it came to Gentiles and Jews and many of the Gentiles, and that was what it talks about here, the practice of circumcision. Now, up until Jesus' death and resurrection, in order to be a part of God's people on earth, you had to be circumcised. Read the Old Testament. It's in there. Man and Men who were of Jewish heritage, they would have this done on the eighth day. And in turn, they and their family would grow up to be blessed and be able to know God. God had directed his people to do this on the eighth day, and there was medical benefits to it, and God had directed them to do it for a reason. God established his covenant with Abraham in Genesis. And he gave Abraham this command, uh, as far as his people go, in Genesis 17, 12. If you want to go look it up, that's where it is, Genesis 17, 12. And if you don't know about this particular thing, I'm just going to say, go ask your parents. <laughs> ask someone besides me. I'm not going to go into the details of it this morning. Uh, but it's a, it's a tradition that many people follow now, but the Gentiles in the time of the New Testament, they would not have. It would have been something they weren't doing. And this was a problem because if you were a Jewish, you were a Jewish person and someone wanted to know God, but they weren't circumcised, it was a no-go. You absolutely, positively could not do it. And Paul is telling the Gentiles, yeah, you were outsiders because you didn't have this physical outward sign. The Gentiles, they were not the only problem. They might have had the outward obstacle. But the Jewish people, God's chosen people, they had an issue of the heart. They may have had the physical thing figured out, but they had an issue of the heart. There's a reason the NIV uses quote marks. I don't know if we had that up there, but if you have an NIV, NIV Bible, it uses quote marks around uncircumcised and 
uh, where it says, by those who call themselves the circumcision. Because the Jewish people had become proud of the fact that they had that. They had become very proud of this specific physical act. But they had not understood that it only affected their bodies and not their hearts. Only affected their bodies and not their hearts. This is a version of the old illustration, you know, if I'm in the garage, I must be a car. Right? You can go stand in the garage all day, all you want. You can write Chevy across your forehead, right? I mean, you can put exhaust pipes on your kneecaps, whatever you want to do. It doesn't make you a car. You can say, I'm a car. You can go stand in the garage, put an ignition, ignition switch in your ear. I don't know. You can do whatever you want to, but you are not a car. The Jewish people were saying here, we are the people of God because of this one physical act. And Paul is saying it's not the case anymore. God is saying to the Jewish people here is, you can claim you're holy all you like, but this one physical attribute does not make you God's people. This is a new thing for them. You see, both the Gentiles and the Jews had a problem. The Gentiles was one of heritage and a physical attribute, a custom that they just didn't practice. While the Jews, their problem had everything to do with the condition of their heart. But here is the incredible thing. We're kind of laying the groundwork. Here's the incredible thing. The coming of Jesus took care of both of those. The Gentiles had a problem. The Jewish people had a problem. Jesus came to take care of both. Because what God wants us to know now is that any outward physical condition is no longer how we are reconciled or restored to him. There's not a single physical thing you can do to reconcile yourself to God. Instead, it's the condition of our heart that God looks, like, God looks at. What Paul says here is the marking of the body is something done by the hand of man, but the renewal of the heart is something that only God can do. The renewal of your heart, friends, is something that only God can do. Now, this was a massive hurdle that both the Jews and the Gentiles had to overcome. But it wasn't the only aspect keeping the Gentiles from being reconciled. God made with Abraham in Genesis 15. You go to church very long, you spend much time around church and people that know God, they're going to talk about this covenant where God tells Abraham that his offspring will be as great as the stars in the sky. Abraham, every single person from here on out is going to come from you. Genesis 15. Now God doesn't differentiate, if you go back and read that, he doesn't differentiate between Jews and Gentiles. It says all nations. But the Gentiles here in Ephesians, they wouldn't have known this because they would have known nothing about it. They hadn't been taught these scriptures growing up like the Jewish children would have been. Finally, verse 12 says that they were without hope. Without hope. Like we just mentioned, God's ultimate plan was to bless all nations through Abraham, but the Gentiles, they wouldn't have known any of this. And without that hope, they had done what many of us would do in the absence of hope or some direction, they would have done what many of us had do. You see, the evidence of God was all around them. And there's proof in the Old Testament of people being godly and being people of God uh, without being part of Israel. Um, and it's, I 
chose to cut that part out today because we don't have time, but there's people all over the Old Testament that knew God. But Romans 125 says what they usually did. Uh, Romans 125, it says this, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than their creator. What they did is they established idols on earth and they worshiped those because they didn't know any better. They were foreigners uh, to the covenant of the promise and they were without hope. Now we ran through that dire sounding list for a reason. It's one of those deals where you say, do you want the bad news or the good news first? <laughs> That's the bad news. We were Gentiles, we were fired from God, we were without hope. We were all at one time separated from the love of Jesus, but there is hope. And hope is an incredibly powerful thing. For some reason, I was reminded of this uh, study this week when I was uh, thinking about this. I'm just going to read you a little anecdote about it. Uh, maybe it's for one of you. This is about hope. When it comes to hope, there was an experiment done by Johns Hopkins professor Kurt Richter. In the 1950s, he conducted an experiment with domesticated and wild rats. He first took a dozen domesticated rats, put them into jars half filled with water, and watched them drown. The idea was to measure the amount of time they swam before they gave up and went under. The first rat, Richter noted, swam around excitedly on the surface for a very short time, then dove to the bottom, where it began to swim around, nosing its way along the glass wall. It died two minutes later. Two more of the 12 domesticated rats died in much the same way. But interestingly, the nine remaining rats did not succumb nearly so readily. They swam for days before they eventually gave up and died. Now came the wild rats, renowned for their swimming ability. The ones Richter used had been recently trapped and were fierce and aggressive. One by one, he dropped them into the water. And one by one, they surprised him. Within minutes of entering the water, all 34 died. What kills these rats, he wondered. Why do all of the fierce, aggressive, wild rats die promptly on immersion and only a small number of the similarly treated, tame, domesticated rats? The answer, in a word, is hope. The situation of these rats scarcely seems one demanding fight or flight. It is rather one of hopelessness, he wrote. The rats are in a situation against which they have no defense, and they seem to literally give up. Richter then tweaked the experiment. He took other similar rats and put them in the jar. Just before they were expected to die, however, he picked them up, held them a little while, and then put them back in the water. Sounds cruel. In this way, he wrote, the rats quickly learn that the situation is not actually hopeless. The small interlude made a huge difference. The rats that explained, experienced a brief reprieve swam much longer and lasted much longer than the rats that were left alone. They also recovered almost immediately. When the rats learned that they were not doomed, that the situation was not lost, that there might be a helping hand at the ready, in short, when they had a reason to keep swimming, they did. They did not give up, and they did not go under. After elimination of hopelessness, wrote Richter, the rats do not die. You see, the news that comes next that we're about to read about, it isn't just good news. It's the best news. It's the news that gives us the hope that enables us to keep on swimming. If you're without hope today, friends, God gives you a reason to keep on swimming. There's an incredible statement that started with the word but, B-U-T, uh, back in Ephesians 
Let's read that together. Ephesians 2, 4, it says this. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. But God made us alive. Verse 13 is a very powerful corollary to that. In the same way, it gives us hope. Let's look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. But now. See, friends, this isn't just good news. It's the best possible news there is. And for you today, if you're far from God, you can be brought near because of the blood of Jesus. If you are far from God, you can be brought near because of the blood of Jesus. If it feels like there is a longer list of reasons than you have time to go through why you can't draw near to God, just like the Gentiles, if you feel like you've never, ever been close to God, there is hope for you today. Take heart because what, the Ephes- what Ephesians tells us is that God himself has drawn near to us. When we were far from him, God drawn near, drew near to us. That hope can bring us new life today. We're going to go just a little farther this morning in this passage, and then we're going to save the rest for next week. It's important to say, though, it's easy for those of us who have been serving God for a really long time to have this misconception. If you're like me and you've been in church since you were six years old, it's easy to get this misconception that it's us against them. It's the Christians against misconception that it's us against them. It's the Christians against totally shatters our boundaries and our theology. Paul acknowledges here that there was once a wall between believers and unbelievers. We talked a minute ago about how the blood of Jesus brings those who are far from God near to him. But there's another group of people who can sometimes be far from God and not even know it. That is those who are in bondage to the law. See, as Christians, we can get to be in bondage to the rules and regulations that guide our comings and our goings. We can get so attached to our routine they were in bondage. Paul has just finished addressing those who are far from God simply because they've never known about him. That's the Gentiles. And now he's addressing those who are far from God because they've been serving a set of rules instead of the living God. That's what they've been doing, serving a set of rules instead of God. I don't know about you, friends, but that resonates deeply with me. I've been going to church for a long time, and I've been trying to follow the rules because sometimes I need to be reminded that there is no rule we can follow that reconciles with God. There isn't one. Don't misunderstand me, friends. When we give our lives to Christ, he does call us to a higher standard. There's things in your life you'll never discover if you don't live the way that God asks you to live. But when it comes to going to heaven, there's not a single action we can take. Ephesians talks plenty about how God asks us to live, and we'll talk in detail about it after Easter. But I want you to hear this today, friends. If you've been in church for forever and a day like I have, if you remember one thing today, remember this. Jesus didn't abolish the law with his flesh so we can do whatever we want. He abolished the law so that we wouldn't rely on it to save us. Jesus abolished the law so we wouldn't rely on it to save us. And the blood of Jesus is so powerful that it makes it so that those who are lost can now draw near to God. It renders powerless any rule or regulation. There's hope. There's hope for you today, friends. If you've been struggling, there's hope to keep swimming.
and it puts all of us together under one umbrella. You see, in the kingdom of God, there's no good or bad. There's no black or white. There's no clean or dirty. There's no expensive clothes and cheap clothes. In the kingdom of God, there's only hope in the Lord. And everyone who believes in the hope of Jesus is reconciled to God and is part of his church. Again, we'll get into more of this next week. How we together are one church, how when we're reconciled to God, we can then be reconciled to each other and then united. But when I got to this point, when I was studying on Thursday, I got to be honest, my plan was to charge through all of chapter two, the rest of it. But have you ever ridden bumper cars? Anybody ridden bumper cars before? No, that sounds kind of random at this point in the service. But you know you're riding bumper cars and uh, you know you've figured out how the thing turns and you got it kind of figured out and you got a beat on someone. Maybe you sweated the line with someone and you're going to go try and ram the bumper car into them, you know. And you got it all figured out and then the thing turns off because the timer went up, right? And you, you mashed the little pedal and it just won't go any farther. That's what happened to me on Thursday. I was just charging through this, typing stuff, and it was great finishing it up Thursday morning when I usually finish, and it was like the timer went up. I was like, man, that's weird. I was at home in the morning where it was quiet, and uh, went over to make a sandwich, thinking maybe I you know, need a break or something, and the Lord spoke to me. And I went back over and I typed it out. Just three words, celebrate the hope. Celebrate the hope. So what I wanted to do was charge through the rest of this. But what God said to me on Thursday was celebrate the hope. There's hope for you today, friends. Hope if until this moment you felt far from God. You can draw near today by the blood of Jesus. Hope if until this moment you always felt like even though you gave your life to Christ, you've always been part of the have-nots. Jesus came to abolish the haves and the have-nots. And there is even hope for those of us like me who take ourselves a little bit too seriously sometimes. So this morning, friends, we're going to celebrate the hope. Uh, we're going to sing together in a minute. Would you close your eyes? I just want to give the Lord a moment to speak before we sing.